Welcome to the Kansas Reflectors podcast. I'm Tim Carpenter, and I'm dutifully reporting that Congress once again did what it does so well. It kicked another can down the road. Congress couldn't work out a deal on a new farm bill, the legislation guiding farm and food programs in the United States. The House and Senate, with Joe Biden's blessing, did approve a one-year extension of the national farm bill, which normally runs five years, but will need to endure for a sixth. I'm joined by organic market gardener, Paul Johnson, who is a policy analyst with the Kansas Rural Center, and farmer Nick Lewandowski, executive director of the Kansas Farmers Union. They're going to help us better grasp nuances of the Farm Bill and how the legislation might be modified to serve broader agriculture interests in the Sunflower State. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great being here. Hi, Paul. Thanks for uh, Paul's joining us in our office in Topeka. And Nick, appreciate you calling in from Belleville. I think anybody driving down interstate through Kansas would come away convinced that this is a big farm state. Kansas is in the top 10 in sales of livestock and crops. We're big exporters of wheat, soybeans, corn, sorghum, key crops sponsored by the Farm Bill. And uh, like I said, you know, we're a huge producer of beef. Paul Johnson, let's start with a 30,000-foot primer on the Farm Bill. What is this thing? <laughs> well, Farm Bill really drives cropping patterns in the state of Kansas. So um, it's passed every five to, like you said, seven years. Uh, 2018 was the last one. We'll probably get one in 2024. Um, when you look at the Farm Bill, 80% of the Farm Bill are food programs, and primarily the what was known as uh, food stamps, and now is a SNAP program. And then 20% of the of the Farm Bill is uh, farm programs. And for Kansas, it's incredibly important. I mean, those farm programs annually. Uh, come in at one to $1.2 billion for farmers. Um, whereas food stamps or SNAP, um, will vary from 400 to 500 million in, in a given year. And so, um, and as Tim said somewhat, um, our farm bill basically drives growing, uh, via crop insurance and commodity payment portions four crops in our state, wheat, sorghum, <clears throat> corn, and soybeans. And that's where the vast amount of the subsidies go for. And the vast amount of those subsidies go to only 20% of the farmers, which leads to consolidation and, and other problems we have with the farming community. But um, And we need a, a robust debate in, in this state. We need the Kansas legislature doesn't seem to – take notice and uh we we need to build it into the congressional campaigns and uh, really talk about kind of future farming in kansas all right nick i if you could piggyback on that a little bit when i think about the farm bill there are the food programs that help uh people that need nourishment but there are impacts in terms of the policy elements of the farm bill that that impact land use crop patterns soil water uh and 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 as Paul said, the consolidation of agriculture. So, can you just speak to how it influences the industrial agriculture of the United States? Certainly, Tim. Um, and I think it's important for folks to understand that the Farm Bill is com- comprised of twelve different titles. Uh, you know, we've got the commodity title, we've got conservation, trade, nutrition, credit, rural development, research, forestry, energy 
horticulture, crop insurance, and then the all-encompassing miscellaneous titles. So it, it really is pretty much everything under the sun when you think about what, what all it entails. And it does drive, um, as Paul mentioned, you know, it, it determines what is grown. Uh, certainly the market, uh, the, the ag market itself determines what's grown and raised uh, in Kansas and across the country, but the farm bill itself does as well. And so the, the makeup of the ag committees can drive that. When we look at the House Ag Committee and, and we see where folks are from across the country and we look at the Senate Ag Committee, you know, it tends to be a lot of representation from the upper Midwest and through the Great Plains, not a lot of representation from the West when it comes to the Senate Ag Committee. Um, but those those different titles that I mentioned really do drive the policy as well. So when we talk about conservation, we talk about, you know, being good stewards of the land and those programs that conserve the the water, that conserve the land. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, building terraces. We're talking about moving to no-till uh, or minimum tillage practices. We're talking about soil health and cover crops uh, and all of those kinds of things. But then we also get into uh, things like crop insurance, and and I know we'll dig into that a little more, but it truly does drive uh, where this farm bill goes. And and while everyone would like to think that this will be a a revolutionary farm bill, it it is not going to be, and it and it was never going, it was never intended to be revolutionary, but it is certainly evolutionary. Um, the the farm bill has evolved immensely since the very first farm bill was introduced 90 years ago. In, in 1933, and we've only had 18 of them uh, in that 90-year period. Uh, as as Paul mentioned, it's you know usually every four to six years. Sometimes it's a little less. Sometimes it's a little more. Uh, but they have certainly evolved uh, in that 90-year period. So I presume y'all would think that the reason food and farm programs are blended together in one bill is to draw votes from the rural and urban uh, members of Congress. Absolutely true. Absolutely. And that was, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought, Nick. Okay. Um, that was absolutely the reason back in the 1970s when, uh, former Senator Bob Dole of Kansas and former Senator, uh, uh, McGovern of, um, was it South Dakota? Yeah. George McGovern. I believe it was. Yeah. Um, they sat down together, you know, one being a, a Republican from Kansas, the other being a Democrat from South Dakota both farm state senators and said, look, we've got this glut of product on the on the market right now, farm products, and we've got a lot of hungry people. And they realized that it was time to tie the two together uh, so we can give them the thanks for that. Uh, and, but the reality is uh, out of 435 congressional districts in this country, um, only about 30 to 35 are considered rural. And that voice gets smaller and smaller. That rural voice gets smaller and smaller every time we do reapportionment, which is, of course, every 10 years after a census. So the rural voice is getting smaller and smaller. The urban voice is getting larger and larger. But the reality is there are just as many rural people utilizing uh, these these SNAP programs and these food and nutrition programs as there are urban. And, and COVID really exposed that. Uh, we saw a lot of food insecurity all across this country, um, and and a lot of those places were rural. Uh, so, you know, we, we utilize those programs in these rural areas just as much as the urban folks do. 
Paul, you had another thought? Well, I was going to echo what, you know, it was Bob Dole that, that really, and he, he did it to keep urban legislators more, you know, in tune to a debate on agriculture because Dole saw the trends, you know, fewer, fewer farmers in this country. And so, you know, it was a political balancing act. And, um, there's been efforts over the last, you know, at times by certain conservatives and uh, forces to try and separate it out now and pull a food stamp SNAP program, food programs out of the farm bill. Uh, but I don't think I don't see that happening in, in certainly not in the near future. This could be to either one of you. I'm kind of curious if if uh, the one year delay in writing another farm bill has serious implications. You know, the previous one was written five years ago, but we've had big run up on inflation and so forth that it's affect the agriculture industries. Is, is, are there any issues with that? Well, part of it is that we're, we're moving further away from the commodity portions of uh, the, the farm bill and kind of base pricing. And we're building more and more of the <clears throat> coverage for farmers or protection or what are shielding uh, through crop insurance. And so that balance is changing somewhat. But um, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I, I think one of the big things, especially what we've noticed in the last year or so, um, when it comes to crop insurance, especially, is we see these extreme weather events that are happening. And whether you want to believe it's climate change or not, uh, really doesn't matter. What, what's happening across the country is significant when it comes to crop production. Uh, a year ago, here in Republic County, where I'm sitting, we had some of the best crops uh, that we've ever raised. And it was because we got rains just when we needed them. Now this year, this last growing season was one of the worst that we've seen since about the 1950s, the last time we had a significant drought here in, in this part of the country and in this part of the state. So mm-hmm. crop insurance is going to get exercised significantly. Uh, in my area and many other areas across the state of Kansas, uh, but also in areas where we've seen significant flooding. Uh, and we're seeing insurance companies pulling out of areas that are being affected by climate change. We're seeing insurance companies pull their coverage in parts of Florida and in parts of California. Uh, I would imagine that after the, the, the fire in Hawaii, there's going to be significant discussions about that. So, so that will, in turn, drive um, crop insurance policy on the federal level with Farm Bill as well, because uh, people are not going to have access to the crop insurance that they need. Plus, if we get into this discussion about uh, whole farm revenue protection, which is for uh, that's crop insurance for folks who grow, uh, you know, food like what Paul grows, you know, food that people eat. Um, then that's another topic of discussion that that gets kind of hairy because they're the whole farm revenue protection program is not always that accessible and it's not always that affordable, especially when you're growing a great variety of crops in comparison to, you know, normal commodity crops like your corn, wheat, soybeans, sorghum, uh, those kinds of things. So it's, it's definitely uh, an issue that we're paying very close attention to and, of course, Farmers Union has insurance. Uh, we offer crop insurance to uh, to folks out there. 
Um, but I'll tell you, it, it took a pretty big hit this year and, uh, and it looks That's, like it's going to be that way down the road. Well, Nick raised crop insurance. Let's take a step back and could you take a crack at just explaining what crop insurance is, what the philosophy there is? Like, how does it work for, just talk to a city slicker about it. <laughs> Well, Nick might be a lot closer to some of these technical details than this organic just market. Broadly, just expanding market gardener, but, uh, and it's, it is narrowly focused in crop insurance like it is with those commodity payments to, yeah. you know, uh, just a handful of, of crops in this country. And this, I mean, it basically, um, it's, it's a certain, um, monetary protection, um, that, um, you know, you're, you're paying for, a, a certain um, amount of return per acre on, you know, a given crop. And, you know, it backs up uh, those instances where droughts or floods or other examples come into play. So, um, but it's like Nick said, it, it, uh, it needs to work much better for a, a broader, more specialty crop growers for the kind of food that we should be eating in this country. And, um, and it's run out of the FSA office in Manhattan, the crop insurance, and they struggle with getting enough basic farm data expenses, et cetera, et cetera, to, to understand how best to write crop insurance for grapes or for, you know, cucumbers or for, you know, other opportunities. Um, I know Nick could help spell out a few more details here. But. Before you do that, Nick, I, I went to a, a forum with U.S. Representative Jake LaTurner, and he was asking farmers, farm group people, what they wanted out of the next farm bill, and at the top of the list was crop insurance. Can yeah. you tell us why that's so important, Nick? Yeah, it's it's very important because that is truly the only safety net that farmers have when it comes to you know crop production. And when you're faced with these disasters, whether it's drought or whether it's flood or, or you name it, um, these are the things that help to keep a, a farmer in business, so to speak. Um, and, and yes, it is subsidized by the federal government. Um, and the reality is that uh, it does not make the farmer whole. I mean, they're not going to get, you know, exactly what they would have got out of their, their crop yield, you know, if it if it would have been a decent crop, uh, they're only going to get probably what might cover their inputs, meaning their seed and their fertilizer costs and that. Uh, but those costs have gone, you know, through the roof, just like everything. As you mentioned, you know, inflation has affected the cost of everything, and that includes fertilizer. That includes seed and chemicals and all that that goes into uh, production agriculture. Um, but it truly is the only safety net that farmers have. And, you know, if you are going to participate in any of the farm programs that the federal government has, you have to have crop insurance. And as Paul mentioned, it's mm-hmm. it's run through the Farm Service Agency, which is based in Manhattan. And then there are county offices all across the, the state. Um, but that's just that's how it is. You, you have to have that crop insurance uh, in order to participate in those programs. Let's talk about commodity payments, which he mentioned. You got to have insurance to participate in the commodity programs. Is that right? Is that what you're saying, Nick? Well, yeah. I mean, it's you, you've got to protect that crop, 
Okay. And, and in order to do that, that means you've got to have crop insurance. And, and okay. if you're going to participate in any, in any government programs, um, such as, um, well, say for instance, um, any conservation programs, you've got to have. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I was going to say that's, that's probably the biggest battle that, that a lot of environmentalists and, and people are looking at is it's not mandatory that uh, there is a conservation angle with crop insurance. And that's what, you know, the major commodity groups and the Farm Bureau, et cetera, are fighting to, uh, you know, try and improve farming practices, you know, should be integral to, uh, um, crop insurance. So there's people mm-hmm. that, that would believe that if you're going to, uh, involve the government right. in these kind of programs, then you should, uh, why not layer in some environmental, uh, protections in, in there as well? Yes. Uh, Paul, let's just shift gears a bit to the commodity payments. Are those payments in Kansas evenly divided? Uh, you know, let's just look at the number of farms and, uh, what, what portion, um, is received by them. Well, um, from the there, there's uh, the USDA has uh, an ag census that's every five years, and the last one was in 2017, and there's one that's being done for 2022 that will come out early next year. And so, from the 2017 numbers, there were 50, just under 59,000 farms in the state of Kansas, and when you look at the that billion dollars a year in farm payments that come to Kansas over the last 20 years, um, 88% of those farm payments went to only 20% of the farms. So it's basically, you know, about 10,000 farms took, you know, the, the vast, uh, um, virtually all of it, you know, and, and so only 12% those farm payments were left over for uh, the remaining um, you know, eighty uh, percent of the farms. So we're talking. What we're looking at there are there are big farms out there that are growing wheat, sorghum, corn, beans, and they're taking the vast bulk of of the uh, commodity payments. They're the big Correct. producers. They are the big producers. And if actually you take another step at this uh, and looking at that twenty seventeen ag census numbers. Um, out of those 59,000 farms, just um, about 5% of them, um, just at 2,900 farms, accounted for 75% of all farm sales mm. in the state of Kansas uh, in 2017. Yeah, that, and, that uh, makes the family farm I grew up on, Missouri, uh, look silly. Uh, there's another element of this, and it, part of it is the food programs, but part of it is uh, the environment and, and, and the USDA recommends we eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and we have whole grain and you got to get your dairy. But these farm program subsidies are quite different, right? Paul, do you want to touch on that? <laughs> so, so their USDA is telling us we should be, uh, eat well, but what USDA funds in terms of subsidies, uh, in their programs, it kind of goes in a different direction. Oh, it goes in absolutely different direction. It has health implications and obesity, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, uh, as you said, the USDA food plate, many people are familiar with. I mean, half of the servings should be, you know, fruits and vegetables. And then 25% should be our grains and preferably whole grains, although 
we turn most of our wheat in Kansas into white flour. But um, but what actually is funded by the Farm Bill is that two thirds of the of the subsidies go essentially for feed grains for meat and dairy, mm-hmm. and then you have twenty percent that that's grains, and then about fifteen percent of the starch and soy sugar and some other things and for fruits and vegetables it's uh, less than one percent of uh, the federal farm bill subsidies that go for uh, primary sources of um, healthier food nick from the perspective of the kansas farmers union is there any problem with uh, that distinction oh certainly um i mean we truly need to call this what it is, and it is the food and farm bill, uh, but it is primarily because 80% of it is uh, the food and nutrition programs. But we need to do a better job of making that known in the public. We need to educate folks, and we also need to do a better job of, of making sure that the foods that we eat are uh, also made more affordable uh, and more accessible in, in a lot of places, uh, not just in urban areas, not just in, in uh, rural areas, but across the country. Uh, cause as I said earlier, you know, the COVID exposed a lot of, uh, discrepancies, I guess you could say within the system, uh, you know, issues that we have all across, um, the food systems, but especially when it comes to food insecurity and, and we can't just rely on, uh, local convenience stores or, you know, your, your, your dollar stores and that. Uh, we need we need real true grocery stores and communities that have the food that that people need for nutrition uh, that is available to them. Or at least we need to have uh, programs in place, uh, systems in place that addresses that need. If if you're not able to build in that infrastructure, such as a a grocery store, um, maybe some of those grocery stores could have some uh, tomatoes and and grapes and apples grown regionally. That'd maybe. Be nice. Exactly. And, you know, Kansas was once uh, one of those states that we grew a lot of produce. You know, uh, I'm reminded of the Drowthy Kansas painting that's at the State Historical Society uh, Museum. And it shows, you know, Kansas, especially eastern Kansas, was, you know, not just the, the breadbasket, but we were growing grapes and we were growing potatoes and we were growing watermelon and, and all of these wonderful crops. Um, there was lots and lots of diversity at one time. Heck, Topeka is, uh, you know, Native American for a good place to grow potatoes. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not all that far back in our history and, and we could still be doing this. It's just that we choose not to. And because the system allows for the production of these other crops instead, uh, because they've got those, those programs, uh, that benefit them. So, um, we we can go back to this and and it's going to take some time and it's going to take some education and, and relearning things but there's a lot of good things that are happening across the state of Kansas people that are doing wonderful things in high tunnels and all of that uh, in greenhouses um but it's got to be done um with the mindset that you know we we've got to be able to get it to where it's needed and and that is a struggle the logistics of getting food where it's needed can be one of the biggest hurdles. Now, yeah. with COVID, so, one of the great things that came out of COVID was that farmers to, to families food boxes. And, you know, they, we have members that connected people 
especially in the Wichita area, um, with that food. And it would be nice to see programs like that continued. Unfortunately, that, that funding went away, but, uh, that's one way to, to help tackle this problem is to build back those programs and, and make, you know, definite improvements to them. Um, but I think it, it helped to address a lot of the food insecurity issues, especially in some of the urban areas. All right, Nick and Paul, I think what we're going to do here is we're going to call it the 2024 Farm Bill. Let's hope they get it done next year. Let's just talk about some of the proposed fundamental changes that people have tossed around uh, in regards to this important legislation. It's been suggested that maybe uh, the federal government should engage in a phase-out of specific crop subsidies. Um, what do we think about that, Paul? <laughs> I think it's high. It's overdue. I mean, I think it, uh, in terms of you know better nutritional angle to it, you know better medical outcomes. Um, I mean, I, uh, the federal government shouldn't be picking. You know, everybody talks about they shouldn't be picking winners and losers on the business side, and I think it's a real question of why they're picking. Winners and losers uh, via, you know, four or five crops uh, nationwide in the farm bill. And I mean, the most important resource that our country has in Kansas, particularly, is uh, the quality of our soil and how it's treated and and uh, and improving it, you know, passing on to the next generation. And um, I mean, that's, you know, my thought is that um, the 2024 farm bill it should be a five-year phase out of specific commodity and crop narrow crop insurance that goes only for those four crops and that farmers start to get a, a larger a portion, you know, base portion of their income from their treatment of the soil with conservation plans through NRCS and FSA. And then it, it would allow them the diversity and, and the opportunity to, to to farm to the market, and okay, Nick, on, on that conservation issue, it's been suggested that the federal government, the farm bill, should fully fund these conservation programs, better support farmers who want to improve the soil health while they're growing food and so forth, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe that would help with uh, better uh, diversity in terms of cropping choices. You think that would be beneficial? I think that is one way to to address that problem. Um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act actually included a significant amount of money toward conservation programs um, that otherwise would have normally been dealt with in the farm bill. So uh, and and I think that's that's certainly uh, good. I'm glad that they, they recognize that. Um, but I don't know what effect that's actually going to have on the farm bill conservation programs in general, uh, if that means those dollars are going to get shifted elsewhere and. and and if that's the case, you know, well, I, we want to know where they're going and, and what their purpose is. But, but Paul's right. I mean, the, those programs are, are in place, uh, so that we have that land to pass on to the next generation. It's, it's an investment. Uh, and when you, when you take care of that investment, uh, then you have something that's actually worth something to pass on to the next generation or, or whatever it is you choose to do with it. So. Uh, preserving that land, preserving uh, the water and and the soil uh, is key uh, to all of this. I mean, when you look at the Kansas farm situation overall. I mean, only seven percent of existing Kansas farmers are under the age of thirty-five at this point. 
and the average age of Kansas farmers, oh, 58, uh, you know, closing in on 60. And so we're going to see incredible generational changes of who farms land uh, in Kansas in the next 20 to 40 years. And um, right now, half of our farmland is owner-farmed, owner-operated, and about half of our uh, farmland is is tenant-based, rental. And so, you know, to look at five- or ten-year plans of how you treat the soil and the improvements you make to it and soil cover cropping and various, you know, choices of how you improve that soil, you know, we need to get that into the hands of a broader number of farmers and we need a, a, a whole new generation of beginning uh, farmers to um, to emerge for a, a better, you know, more wholesome food system in Kansas. And we need a Kansas food plan, farm plan, from the Department of Commerce and the Department of Agriculture in our state to really talk through this and that um, if people want to grow, you know, uh, lentils or they want to grow millet or they want to grow you know, winter squash or whatever, then we've got to start putting, as Nick said, the mechanisms in place to be able to move and market that food as easily as we do corn and soybeans and wheat. I think there's a lot more we could talk about in terms of Farm Bill, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guest today on our podcast, Paul Johnson, policy analyst with the Kansas Rural Center, and Nick Lewandowski, executive director of the Kansas Farmers Union. Thank you so much for your help with uh, uh, trying to help us all learn a little bit more about the Farm Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim.